It's not just a game, it's not just a grass. Lawn Solutions Australia is the exclusive home of Australia's best sports turf varieties. For the world's best grasses like Tiff Tough Hybrid Bermuda and Sir Grange Zoysia, contact Lawn Solutions Australia at lawnsolutionsaustralia.com.au. Hello, welcome to episode 74 of The Thing about Golf Golf Australia magazine's ongoing quest to figure out what it is that hooks people on this wonderfully infuriating game. Rod Murray here, joined by John Huggan as always when he's been busy interviewing some of the biggest names in the game, and he's been doing that again recently. Huggy, Ryder Cup captain, European Tour stalwart Paul McGinley this time, and can I say, what a fabulous interview from both of you. He is an incredibly interesting bloke. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's nice of you to say that. Because As are you, I might, too much. I might quit Well, no, no, <laughs> hang on. I, I can't take too much credit for this one um, because you don't have to ask too many questions with Paul. He's uh, he's a talker, as is you know, obvious from his current role on the Golf Channel. He's um, he's able to to sit there and hold his own with the, the massive ego that is Brando <laughs> Chambly, which is no easy task. Um, he does a pretty good job of doing that. And uh, yeah, he was a terrific talker. We, we sat down um, in his hotel room at Glen Eagles, actually, during the, the Senior Open uh, in July. And uh, off he went. I mean, as I say, you don't have to, to work too hard when you're interviewing Paul McGinley. He's at that wonderful point, I guess, of a career and a life where reflection is enjoyable. You can tell that he's enjoying reliving a lot of the stuff. His start in the game is most unusual in this day and age, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't that good a player until, you know, into his 20s, which is unusual. Usually guys appear long before that. But, uh, yeah, he was, I think he was something like four or five handicap in his teens and uh, and just worked at it. Um, yeah, he's got an incredible work ethic in every aspect of his life. It seems to me, um, he's into you know goodness knows how many things. I mean, uh, he was he played in the Senior Open. He hadn't played very much, but he made the cut. He's still got a very you, you watch his swing. It's very solid, very orthodox, very consistent. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking out loud that he doesn't have to work too hard at you know playing every week kind of thing to to, to maintain it. Uh, obviously, he was—he's never going to contend in the scene, someone like the Senior Open. He's not going to beat the guys that are doing it every week. But uh, to make the cut was quite a feat, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, he's, he is a great speaker, speaker and a great thinker. There's a real pattern here. He's a late bloomer. He's been a revelation this last couple of years as a commentator. And as you say, he's filled that role with Chambly, which is not easy to do. And he's done a brilliant job of that. He's really found his space there. This late blooming thing is not uncommon for him, is it? Well, it is, and plus, he's uh, maybe he's he's you know greatest claim to fame amidst all of the things that he's done is the fact that um, he really changed the way that Ryder Cup captaincy w- was done and looked at. I mean, uh, until he came along, most of the just about every European Ryder Cup captain was a was a major winner and a and a real star, and they got the job not because they everyone thought they were going to be necessarily great captains, but because they were great players. But Paul changed that. I mean, he Paul would, by his own admission, he, he would never claim to be a great player. He was a really good player, playing in multiple Ryder Cups. Uh, nobody does that without being really good. But uh, he came along and he changed the way it was done. I mean, he he went into it in a in a completely different way, looked at every aspect of it, and and really changed it. Um, and it's it's maybe slipped back a little bit from when he when he did it, but. Uh, 
you have to admire the fact that he was he was big enough and strong enough a to get the job to talk his way into the job and then to do it differently from everyone else had done it before and as well as he did but we won't take up any more of the listeners time before getting to paul mcginley it was a real revelation for me a player i've always been aware of never really realized just how interesting and thoughtful about the game he is what a pleasure it's been for me to listen to it i'm sure it will be for the listeners it's been great to catch up with you as well Huggy. thank you my pleasure Okay, um, welcome to the latest edition of the Thing About Golf podcast. Uh, my guest this week is well, a familiar voice and face to many people, I think, in golf. Um, when you hear him speak, you'll know what I mean. Uh, Paul McGinley, former Ryder Cup captain and Ryder Cup hero, etc. We're, and we're sitting here in an appropriate place, I have to say, Glen Eagles Hotel, scene of your triumphant captaincy, if I can call it that. Anyway, welcome to the Thing About Golf podcast. Thank you, Huggy. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be here. It's yeah. uh, great to be back in Glen Eagles, and we're in the portion of the hotel that we use as our team rooms as well. So this was where we had all this section here. We had the players in one, caddies in another, and then the support staff on the other. So this was... Do you feel at home? So it's a home from home, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anytime you come up here, it's yeah. beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I always start with the same question on this podcast, and what was and is the thing about golf for you? Um, I, to be honest, it was it was a way of making money, having fun doing it. <laughs> um, I was late to the party in terms of of being a a good golfer. I wasn't uh, anyway good as a junior. Um, what, didn't find that. Ju- what do you mean? I wasn't as good as you. I mean, you played junior golf for Scotland. I didn't I did. come near to that with Ireland. At the end, as I started to play golf kind of full time, I made the Irish youth team. But I think I was twenty one. It might have been my last year. Um, as a youth that I made that team. Yeah, I came in the back door. I was, look, I was four handicapped at the age of 19. I was playing Gaelic football in Ireland. I was very good at it. And, and, uh, that's what I was going to do. I was going to play for Dublin. I was going to play in front of Crow Park and 80,000 yeah. people and represent the county I'm from. And, and then I broke my knee and, you know, I was on crutches for nine months. It was a big operation, uh, broken patella and, um, no more football after that and started to play, uh, kind of golf then for my last two years of college. Got down to scratch handicap. Still nowhere near the standard I needed no. to be professional. wasn't even on my radar. And I worked for a year. And while I was working, particularly over in Brussels, I started to get good and got down to scratch handicap for the first time while in Brussels. I'm at the age of 21 now. And I'm thinking... What were you doing there? I was working as a stagiaire, which is a, kind of an internship in the EC. I was a diplomat. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, really you never a made a journalist then. I was a junior, <laughs> very junior. It was a post, postgraduate kind of thing that they right. do to bring interns in. You got paid a hundred pounds a week. I remember it was a lot of money then. And I was thrilled. I was living in a tiny little, um, bed sit with a, with a Greek guy, Costas Klimas. I still remember him nicely from Panathinaikos. Uh, nice guy, really nice guy. I lived with him and this little tiny little bed sit at the very, very top in this, place Rue de Vervier, which is right in the middle walking distance to the EC. And, and that's what we did every day. Five days a week, we went into work and uh, came back. And while I was there, I met a guy called Eamon Gallagher, who was uh, uh, working as part of the Irish um, Irish Corps over there. And he was the head of fisheries at the time. He was a member in uh, the golf club, Royal Club de Belgique, Belgique uh, Rabenstein, yeah, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. Good course, yeah, really good course. the Belgian youths there yeah. many years See, ago. See, you were a good player in your yeah, youth. Well, yeah. Steady, steady. And uh, yeah, and while I was there, um, he got me playing rights there. So I used to, every weekend I used to go and see him. Sometimes during the week I would get the tram down after work and, and under floodlights I would hit a few balls there. And that's when I got down to scratch for the first time. Um, I'm now 21. And, um, as towards the end of that, I thought, you know, I'm getting good at this golf. I wonder could I get a scholarship and 
anyway, one thing led to another, and I ended up going to college. I finished. I finished in in Brussels for six months. Are you bilingual? I, well, I was pretty good at French. Yeah, yeah when I left, yeah, and uh, well, I've lost a lot of it now. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't been practicing. I wish I had kept yeah. it up, to be honest. And um, then I uh, I worked for six months in an investment company in Dublin. And all the time I was kind of working my way to try to get to college in America. I'd never been to America before. I'm now 22. Yeah. So all the colleges are saying, A, you're not good enough, and B, you're too old. Mm-hmm. But luckily a guy in San Diego, who, de- who who another guy that I met over in Belgium, who's a member of that club too, a guy called Larry Brody, he he, he knew the coach because he, he lived in California half the year. And he said, look, uh, I think the coach will take you, but he can't give a scholarship the first year. You've got to find your way to get there. And anyway, between then. Jigs and the reels, you know, mom and dad didn't have a lot of money, but I, I managed to patch the money together somehow to pay for my first year and, and off I went. And that's when I really turned into a, yeah. you know. A, so America made you a player? It made me a player, yeah. I was very lucky because I didn't know where I was going. I'd never been there before. Mm. I mean, going to San Diego is like going to the moon. Um, I, I left at Christmas time, started in January. Uh, coach was amazing, you know, old fashioned coach, you know, Bob Torrance style. Mm-hmm. Um, not too technical. Just kept pushing me away. Wouldn't let me overanalyze things. Worked on the mental game as well as the as well as my swing. Pushed me forward slowly. Um, got me competitive and kind of brought out what was probably strengths in me. And and uh, I ended up six months later being a Walker Cup player. Well, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, I looked at the, the we notes I was making. You turned pro at twenty five. Yeah. Which I hadn't realized. Yeah. I know. I mean, Monty Late was the, the same. Party. He Late was 24, I think. Yeah, I mean, Pardick was, was up there too, wasn't he? Well, he played three Walker Cups, so yeah, yeah he yeah. had to be. But he was good as a junior. He, yeah. he played all the junior golf with Ireland, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, everybody matures at different stages, you know. Um, and I, I didn't even, even when I turned pro, I mean, I, I signed with Chubby and I didn't think I was going to last a year. Um, I, I played my, I, the first thing he did was he said, right, you, you got to go and play two tournaments before the tour school down in, um, in Grenoble in Switzerland, which is a challenger event, and then the European under 25s. And I went on a two, two week road trip. Um, didn't even have the money. I think Chubby gave me the money to go. Um, stayed in the, you know, the cheapest places I could go train. I think I got trained down there, went to Grenoble, played in the first event, missed a cup by about eight shots, nine shots. And I'm thinking, what am I doing down here? What, what am I doing? Yeah. I'm miles off the pace with these guys. And, and, um, Went to the following week, I was on a two week trip and went to Paris and all I wanted to do was just keep my head down and make a cut. If it was 50 quid, I, I didn't care. I just wanted yeah. to make the cut and I did that. And, uh, then the weekend I played okay in the Saturday and the Sunday. I'm four or five groups from the end going out. I've no idea what the prize money is. I'm not looking at anything. All I want to do is just keep my head down. I was afraid to look around me or behind me. Yeah. Afraid to look at a leaderboard, anything. I just wanted to keep my head down and try to shoot something around par. I think I shot a decent score, 67 or 68. I don't know what it was. And, um, I ended up winning by a shot. I, I mean, and I won 15 grand and I swear money will never be as much to me as that 15 grand was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's pretty remarkable because as you say, I mean, there's a big jump from scratch to, yeah, being at all competitive yeah. in in pro golf. I mean, that's a eighteen five, months, five shots around. Yeah, isn't I'd it? say it was eighteen months, Huggy, uh, two years maximum. Yeah, from from getting to scratch to winning that European under twenty five. So then going to the tour school a month later and coming second. Now I'm on the tour. I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm on yeah. the tour. Yeah. Well, what are the pieces to that? I mean, that's it's not just one thing. Can't be just one thing. Is it technique? Is it mental? Is it putting? Is it whatever? I I, I mean, all the strengths of my game have been. That there's no weakness, you know. I think that's kind of, you know, 
everything about me has been uh, middle of the road. You know, I've been a good putter. I've been a good iron player. I've had decent distance. I've been pretty straight. Um, I've been pretty competitive, but nothing stands out. Uh, I was never streaky. Uh, I was a kind of consistency and it became more and more consistency. And that was my kind of DNA as a golfer. And, uh, you know, I prepared, I always give myself the best chance. You know, I never, I never, um, you know, got drunk or, or, or you know, <laughs> turned <laughs> up worse for wear and all that stuff. You know, I always give myself the best chance. And, you know, if I had any fault, it was I tried too hard like everybody else. But that's how I ground out a career, to be honest. I still find it difficult, but I can enjoy the battle. You're being a wee bit modest here because I, I looked all this up. I mean, you won the Irish Amateur. You won the Irish Youths. Yeah. You won the Scottish Youths. That was in the two years. Yeah, it was right. in the two years. Yeah. yeah. And you played in the Walker Cup. Yeah. Which I wanted you to talk a bit about. Yeah. I mean, that would be your first um, sight of Phil Mickelson, I'm sure, was it? Yeah, so that was, the F- Walker Cup was, was when I was 24 years of age, and um, I'd been playing college golf in America and done well. I'd won I'd won two tournaments individually. Uh, we were Division One, but they weren't like the elite tournaments. They were, But they were still Division One tournaments. And um, I was the number one player on our team. We had a great team. They're all still buddies of mine now in San Diego. We all keep in touch. And... Um, Anybody we've heard of? No, no, no. I was the only guy who ended up even turning pro to have a cut at the tour school. And, um, and, um, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, back then you didn't have internet and stuff like that, but you were following what was going on. And Mickelson was a standout. And then mm-hmm. Mickelson wins an amateur, wins a professional event as an amateur. I mean, that was like, oh my God, this yeah, guy's a I god, you know. Watching and, that, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, he was, I mean, he was a completely different league than me. And, and then I, I get to play Walker Cup, but, you know, I, I was I was somewhat a rabbit in the headlights, to be honest. I wasn't really, although I made the team comfortably and I deserved to be on the team. Uh, I didn't really have the confidence that I was one of the best players there. But you managed 20. to beat Phil in a game. We bit him in the foursomes with Liam White. We did yeah. really well. We played him and Bobby May. We played in Port Marek. The weather was unbelievable all week long. I don't think we had any more than five mile an hour wind. It was sun baked mm-hmm. Ireland in September. And, uh, George McGregor was our captain and, uh, you know, we got beaten. It was a very, very strong American team. You know, Duval was on the team, Bobby May, Mickelson, um, Alan Doyle, who won a couple of senior opens he won and yeah. Jay Siegel. I mean, it was strength to strength to strength. They were a much stronger team than us and, and, and we lost. And, but it was a good experience for me. Um, I didn't, as I say, I'd made the team comfortably, but I wasn't one of the standout players. In fact, I think George dropped me for the second day. I didn't play in the singles. Um, was that second. kind of the limit of your ambition at that point? No, no, no. I'd made a promise to myself. The first year I went to college in America, I did well. And now I'm like plus two handicap. I come back and I dominate the amateur scene in Ireland. Right. And I'm now 23, 20, yeah, 23, 22, 23. Um, I dominate the amateur scene. I think I won the Scottish Youths that time. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, Walker Cup is in Ireland next year. If I make the Walker Cup team, I'm going to have a go at Turner Pro. If I don't make that team, I'm not going to have it. That was my validation to myself. Uh, I wasn't going to cod myself that I was good enough to have a go. I'd seen too many guys go and then fall on their face. Yeah. And remember, back then it was a lot tougher because when you turn pro, you turn pro and you weren't coming back. Mm-hmm. And you might have had two or three years to sit out to come back again, even if that. That's if you decide to come back straight away. Yeah. So it was a big decision, much tough, bigger decision than it yeah. is now. And, uh, but I said, right, I'm going to have a go at it. And, um, and I made the Walker Cup team. I made it comfortably. I was the Irish amateur champion, as you say. I dominated the amateur scene in Ireland. I'd come over to show my face in the UK, um, in order to try to make the Walker Cup team. And I, I came third in the Scottish. I came third in the, was it the Scottish? I, I said, play, was it? 
It might have been, yeah, I might have come, I, I came third in all three of them anyway. Mm. So it's probably the Scottish stroke play, the, uh, the Welsh amateur and, and also the Lillen trophy. Right. So now I've, you know, top five finishes in three of the biggest events mm. in the UK, along with my record in Ireland. So I made the team kind of comfortably. Mm-hmm. The, the Irish have always, or, or certainly in my time playing at that level, was uh, they always complained about how they never got as many guys in the Walker Cup team as they should because yeah. of the the water in between, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that I, still I, the same way or was I, it back in your time? You're about 10 years after me. So. Yeah, I, no, I, I think I think we did well to get three in the Walker Cup team. I mean, Pardick, I think Pardick was last man in and I don't think, if it wasn't in Ireland, I don't think if Pardick would have made it. Mm-hmm. I think he'd admit that himself. Um, of course, Darren had turned pro. Darren he, had he would have been pro. He would have been. He would have yeah. been the best player on the team because right. uh, he was an outstanding amateur. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Podrick was the last man in because I, because he was Irish and it was a links course and he'd done pretty decently. Um, but myself and McGimsey and him were the three players on the team, which is a big a big uh, contingent from Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so you're convinced. Uh, you're finally convinced. It sounds like that you're good enough. Um, you sounded like yeah. you were the person that you needed to convince the most in this. Absolutely, yeah. I'd, yeah. I've always been that way, Huggy. I, I don't want to fool myself, you know. I want to, mm. I want to be realistic about things, and and I felt, yeah, if that's 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 the standard. If I don't make that standard, I am wasting my time, and uh, and that was it. And you know, I came from a you know very much a middle class background. I mean, I remember when I went to college in America, Dad guaranteed me a loan um, for five grand, you know, in order to get there to pay my way the first year. And I remember signing, and I'm the eldest of five kids, and remember just above where I was signing to get the student loan was father's income, and it was 12 grand. You know, that was, you know, and I'm the eldest. So he's yeah. signing away half of his income, yeah. almost guaranteeing it rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and luckily, you know, after two years, I, I'd won that 25s, and, uh, and I was able to, you know. Well, he had faith in you, obviously. He did. And, and, and yeah, I mean, that's his reason I played golf. And, and, you know, he, he played all the amateur circuit in Ireland. That's how I started. I used to caddy for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a one handicap. And, um, yeah, that's how I learned how to play golf was, was from him. So yeah, he was backing me and, and in some ways he was excited about the opportunity I had and, uh, you know, uh, to be a professional mm-hmm. sports person and make a living yeah. from it. Mm-hmm. And, and well, I, I mean, really, I've met your dad and he, he's steeped yeah. in golf, isn't he really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Steeped in golf and Gaelic football and mm-hmm. any sport, you know. And so, yeah, that was, that was kind of how I started. But even mm-hmm. after my first year, you know, I came second in the tour school and I'm not thinking, I think, you know, how long can I, how long can I get away with this? <laughs> <laughs> how long can I kind of have a moderate success? Yeah. And I remember, you know, trying with Chubby and Chubby was great. Um, he certainly was a big influence in me. Becoming comfortable in that environment. Well, that was I was that was my next question. Sorry yeah. to preempt you a little bit, but when did you actually feel like you belonged? Yeah, Chubby. Uh, well, I had a number. Three big things were important at that time. Um, one of them was Chubby um, and the, the confidence that he had that he knew the business, mm-hmm. um, and there was never panic in his voice or worry in his voice or you know he, he just his body language could see that he had confidence in me, which was good. Um, the second thing was knowing Darren as well as I did. Immediately I hit the ground running with a friend. I, you know, we roomed together and, yeah. uh, and Darren at this stage was in the second year, knew all the guys, introduced yeah. me to everybody. I and can imagine. Being yeah. the man, the swagger. Mm-hmm. Now he was obviously a far superior player than I was, but still the fact that I was now mixing with somebody, you know, peer groups are really important when it comes to, um, professional golf, I think, and who you hang around with. And certainly Darren was, was dragging me along with him. You know, I was in his slipstream 
And I, that didn't hurt me, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the third thing was, you know, you go into the bosom of the Irish guys on tour, you know, Des Smith, Damon Darcy, Christy Jr., Philip Walton, Ronan Rafferty to a lesser extent. But, you know, those guys really brought me under their, under their arm. And, and every night we'd go out for dinner and every night, you know, it was something like good crack. To it me. was good crack. I was <laughs> definitely good. It was a learning experience. Yes, believe me. I'll bet. Um, but it was, it was tough love too, you know, and I, I remember one, I wasn't talking about it the other day when, you know, I remember after about a month or so, I was struggling. I started out okay, made a couple of cuts and did okay. And then I went through a month, maybe two of maybe making one cut out of five or six and, you know, and feeling sorry for myself and coming off the golf course one day and, and saying to Des, look, I'm going to stay in tonight. I'm going to have room service. I, you know, it's just 74 or something. Mm. And him insisting, no, you're not having room service. You're coming out. We're downstairs at seven o'clock. You go up and have a quick shower. I'll see you downstairs in 20 minutes. You're not staying in your room. And, and you know, little things like that, mm. you know, and, and you go out and you have a bit of crack and a laugh. And all of a sudden you've forgotten it and you're fresher then the next day. So that was important. Yeah. Mm. You know, there was people who were holding boundaries for me. Uh, so I wasn't blind in everything that I was doing. Mm. Have you done kind of the same thing with younger guys as they've come along? I've tried to, yeah. Yeah, I've tried to with the younger Irish guys in particular, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy. But, you know, the other thing is you don't want to give unsolicited advice, mm. you know. If they ask, I'm, yeah. I'm delighted to give it. But, you know, none of us like being told what to do. Yeah. You know, if you see somebody struggling or look like they could need help, I'm happy to give it. But if somebody is not looking for a, I kind of stay clear and I'm happy to help, but I don't want to. Well, that just speaks to how independent golfers are. Yeah. Well, I think you have to be, to be honest. I I think, yeah, we're all selfish. I'd agree with the fact that we're selfish. You have to be, you know, it's a, it's a tough business. It's a really, really, really tough business. Um, no matter what level you're at, there's always challenges, you know, or I remember when I turned pro, um, about two months into turning pro, we were back in Europe. I was playing down in, down in Seville in Spain, Monte Castillo. And, uh, it, it was, I was so lucky really because I played college golf in America with Gary Nicholas, uh, Jack's son. And Nicholas at that stage was in his fifties and he was designing golf courses. And when he designed a golf course that was holding a tournament, he came and he played the tournament as part of that contract. And we were playing this, this new golf course called Monte Castillo just outside Seville in Spain. And we went down to play it and Nicholas was playing. Now I'm playing a tournament with Jack Nicholas. I'm only a pro about three, four months. Yeah. And, um, this is kind of maybe six months. It's April. You know, I turned pro after the World Cup. So I'm six months of pro. And, uh, I cheekily asked Gary on the, uh, cause I'd met him. I can't say I knew him, but I, I'd, I'd met him and I cheekily asked him on the Tuesday, uh, in a practice, practice chipping green one day, you know, was it any chance I could have dinner with your, your dad one night? <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, sorry, dad's busy. Paul, oh, there's too much going on this week. But anyway, long story short, Friday night, I've made the cut and I'm in my room. This was before mobile phones, 1992. And I get a phone call. Uh, in the room just before dinner and it's hey Paul it's Gary Nicholas here look dad has missed the cut we're having dinner in this restaurant at 8.30 it's going to be his his agent Roddy Carr who was with IMG um, there was uh, me and dad and dad said you can come along if you want I'm dinner with Nicholas it's unbelievable I still remember it so well and all the stuff we talked about and well, um, what did you talk about Everything. I mean, it was great because Nicholas was relaxed. You know, he was sitting up. I can still see him against this, this, uh, red brick wall, little alcove at the back of the restaurant. And the, he was in the corner there. Um, uh, Gary was to my left. I was in the middle and, and Roddy's to the right. And it ended up being an inquisition, the three of us firing questions at him. Yeah. And he was having a glass of wine. He was having a cigarette and he was yeah. totally relaxed and everything was, 
it was fun and he could see he was enjoying the questions and and he felt he was safe among you know three people that you know that he obviously when he knew those two but not me but you know in the environment he, he felt safe and um so i had loads of questions to ask him i still remember the conversations but one of the most interesting things was at the end of the night he shook my hand and was relieving and wished me good luck in my career and he said paul just remember in my career i've spent 90 percent of my time losing at this game and 10% winning and I'm the most successful that's played the game. Yeah. It's a tough sport, you know, be ready for it, be ready for losing. And, you know, it was good advice. It was really good advice because, you know, you take somebody like Federer or Nadal or something like that of, of you know, somebody, Sampras, you know, with a similar record or maybe not even as good as, 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 um, as, 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 as Nicholas's and, you know, they spent 90, 90, 95% of their time winning. You know, complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rare that a top sports person loses so often as they do in golf. Um, well, yeah, it's a depressing business when you think about it that so way. So it's a tough business. That's the yeah. point I'm making. It's yeah. a tough, mm-hmm. tough, tough business. you got to drag yourself off the floor a lot. Yeah. Let's talk about something you did win, uh, the World Cup in 1997 with yeah. Patrick. How many dinners did you have to go to after that? <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a big deal for both of us. You know, I'd I'd won on tour at that stage, and I was well ensconced on the tour. I think that was Pavlik's first, maybe second year on tour, mm-hmm. and he hit the ground running. He was well prepared. Um, he'd been a you know multiple player in the Walker Cup. He was a really top player, uh, amateur ranks. Um, it was no surprise he got his card. He was comfortable when he got out there. His short game was sensational. Um, his game wasn't great tee to green, but you know, Bob helped. Yeah. Uh, well, Bob hadn't helped yet. What? But he did. That yeah. World Cup was what yeah. turned it. Yeah. Uh, and and we played in Kiwa. We were friends from 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 Ireland. We went to the same school together. We played in the same football team together. And you know, and we grew up and we played Walker Cup together. We played for Ireland together. We played for Leinster together. And um, so it was no surprise to see him making his way, particularly since since I've made it and I wasn't as good an amateur as he was. Yeah. Um. And I knew how competitive he was. And, you know, he was looking at me saying, Jesus, McGinley can make it. I can make it for yeah. sure. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. so we ended up playing the World Cup together and it was good. It was the four of us, me and Ali, my wife and, and her, him and Caroline, the four of us kind of, we weren't expected to win. You know, we were, we were miles off the pace in terms of the betting, if you wanted to put it that way. Uh, couples was on the American team in Davis Love. Monty was in his peak at that round that time. Um, and, uh, yeah. Monty won the individual that week. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We played with him, I think one of the, I think the last day we played with him. And, um, we went out and it was Kiwa and it was a Lynx style golf course, Kiwa Island. Uh, it wasn't long after the war on the shore in 91. And, you know, it was a Lynxy style golf. And, and what I remember was, cause Podic is so competitive. He was competing against me, not just as my yeah. partner, but competing yeah. to shoot a better score than me. Yeah. And he was hitting it all over the place. Mm-hmm. If there was water on the right, he was 50 yards left into the sand and he'd find it and he'd mm-hmm. hack it and he'd get it up and down and he'd make a par. Yeah. And, and, and I was playing really well, hitting fairways, hitting greens. I would, you know, I was, I'd found my feet as a pro and I was Mr. Consistent and, you know, working with Bob at that stage. My game was better. It was, it, it was, you know, I was well capable of playing at that level and, and, um, you know, I, I, I kind of dominated that week tee to green, you know, played beautifully. Yeah. Um, but Porrick was hanging on with, with me, mm-hmm. chipping and putting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we ended up winning. Um, and, and, you know, that at the end of it, I remember us that night, he's saying, you know, I, I need to, I need to try to play like you do tee to green. Yeah. Um, um, tell me about Bob Torrance. And we had a chat about Bob Torrance and, and that's when he started with Bob Torrance. Well, they were the perfect fit, I always thought, because the one thing that Podrick, if you just, described the one thing he lacked was the ability to hit the ball properly and bob makes everybody hit the ball better 
Yes, yeah. good, yeah, good, yeah, good ball strikers. Yeah, it yeah. was all about the ball striking. Mm-hmm. He never gave you a putting lesson or a chip no. lesson. No, 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 never. <laughs> was no, he was interested in that. Up to the salt mines, he would say, and yeah, he yeah. would hit balls all day long. But he asked him for a chipping lesson. No, no, we need to hit more balls. I wanted to ask you about the. You've talked to me about about this before. The the kind of evolution of your partnership with Podrick and how that went. I mean, when you were the better player, yeah. you were you were pretty successful. Obviously, you won the World Cup and. But then he became a better player than you, and it yeah. didn't quite work as well. That was is yeah. that fair? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think so. And and I think it's uh, I, yeah, I, I, probably a product of both our personalities. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to lead, but if somebody's a better player than you, it's hard to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Paul became a much better player than I was in terms of success, and uh, uh, he wasn't competing against me anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, he. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's while he was competing against me, and I was the, I, I was the standard. I yeah. was the target as yeah. well as a partner. I yeah. know what he's like. He's a ferocious competitor. I know he is. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and that was okay. And I understood that, and I got that. And and then when the dynamic changed, and he was to lead me in terms of golfing. I don't mean in terms of personality, but in terms of golfing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't quite have the same. Um, it was, it, well, the mix had changed. I mean, the it, mix had changed. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. The mix had changed. Yeah, I mean, it's never we fell out or crossed words, never mm-hmm. anything like that. But a little spark between us in terms of competitiveness kind of was not the same. Mm-hmm. But we didn't. We did okay. We still did okay. I mean, we, I remember playing partnership and winning in in '06 in the in the in the Walker Cup in or sorry Ryder Cup in in K Club, and we should have won, but we didn't. We we were too over two to play, and we. Americans finished birdie birdie against us. Zach Johnson, I remember to get a half mile. But so we did, still did okay. Mm-hmm. We played several World Cups after that and had a lot of top five finishes. Never won it again. But yeah, listen. Uh, did that experience come in useful, or that knowledge, that, or that your interaction with him come in useful later on when it came to getting partnerships for Ryder Cups? And oh those? yeah, no doubt. I mean, I'm learning the whole time. I mean, I'm on a, I'm on a, basically a, a crusade of learning <clears throat> all the time. I mean, my first walk, ride a cup in, in 02 when Sam was the captain. I mean, I learned so much from him, not just in how he managed me, but how he managed other guys. I mean, how he managed Monty, um, you yeah. know, and how he had Monty on a pedestal. Monty, made, that's the best golf I've ever seen Monty play. Yeah, my, that was Sam. Mm. And, and, you know, and this is, you know, when I hear people say, you know, our captain's not that important, it's about the team. Yeah, of course it's about the team. It's always about the team. It's always about the players. Mm-hmm. But the captain is the, he's, he, he brings it together. He produces performance. You know, if you've got a decent team, two teams that are decent, um, you know, as was the case in 02, Sam was the difference there. I mean, he, I was going into that Ryder Cup feeling lousy, you know, because of 9-11, I'd lost my form. I wasn't playing very well. And, and, uh, you know, he produced, he got me in a position where I, I couldn't wait to hit the winning putt and couldn't wait to be in that situation. You think about where I was six days earlier, no chance. And a lot of it was Sam and, and it was his vibrancy, his energy, his charisma, his belief in me and how he played me. And I saw what he did with Monty too. I mean, Monty, if people don't remember that, but Monty was, was good at the time, but he was on a little bit of a lull at that particular time, mm. the month or a couple of months before it going in. He wasn't, you know, in his come really pump. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, he made Monty the number one. He, mm. you know, he put him out in the singles. He made him, <laughs> you know, I can imagine. it was all about Monty. <clears throat> and it was the Monty show as far as Sam was concerned. And of course, Monty ate that up. And, you know, that's when he produced his best. Monty was when he felt he was really important. And, you know, Langer got that too. And, you know, maybe they don't even know they're doing it, but I certainly observed it. And, 
Langer did that too. And I remember the very first time we sat down in, in 04, um, Big Long in a meeting room on, on the Monday, we just got off the plane and Big Long meeting room. We did that evening, we had a dinner and, and we're all sitting in having a chat and everybody's laughing, having maybe a glass of wine or a beer or a drink. It's a Monday. And Langer walks into the room and looks up and down the table. Everybody goes quiet and he goes, Colin, I forget who was sitting at the end. And he said, Colin, I want you to sit at the very end of the table, you know, opposite Langer. Um, big long table. And it was, it was almost like he was saying in front of everybody, you're my captain this week. Of course, Monty, the shoulders went back and yeah, sure, I'll, I'll sit there. <coughs> and that was his seat that. for the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it, now whether it was conscious or subconscious or the, I, I don't know what Langer was at there because I've never talked to him about it, but he was certainly playing Monty. Mm. And again, another great performance for Monty because again, remember he's going through a divorce at that time in 04. It wasn't yeah. a great time for him. And yet another huge performance well, for him that week. You say that. I, w- I was there. I watched a lot of that. And I'm not sure you're right in that because Podrick carried him for a day and a half. And Monty didn't right. play in the fourth match round of matches right. because he was, he wasn't playing that well. Yeah. And he, but he came out and won his single. But, and you're right. He was a huge performance in terms of points. Yeah. But he had a good partner that week. Yeah. He had a good partner. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we all need good partners. That's well. for sure. Yeah. But still, you know, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, even though you have a great partner, you still have to play somewhat of, of, of a role yeah. in it. Um, and, but um, Padre was definitely the strong man. Stronger one. Yeah. Yeah. Week, yeah. Definitely. That week. Yeah. I want to take you back to O2 slightly, <clears throat> or even O1. Um, you probably won't remember this, but I got the now defunct golf world in America sent me to the Belfry uh, on the days where the, the Ryder Cup would have been played. Right. And you showed up. Yeah. Played with your pals. That's right. Which made my story made my story a lot easier to Good write. Good memory, yeah. But what are your memories of that? It was a really eerie atmosphere, I remember. It was. It was... Uh, I was chomping at the bit, you see. Because I was sixth in the points list. I'd made the team comfortably. I was sixth in the money list. Having flying. I'd won in Wales. I'd made the team. It was going to be my first Ryder Cup. I was flying. And then 9-11 happened. We eventually come back from America because we're all stuck in America. And then the Ryder Cup is cancelled. And it's like, oh, God. And living down in Sunningdale, I'm speaking to Sam. And he said, look, Sam said, look, he said, um, you know, you're going to be a rookie next year. All the stands are up. All the hospitality is up. The place is empty up there. Why don't you just go up and get a sense of what it's going to be like this time next year? Um, and, and just go up and bring your pals with you and, and just go and, and, and have a round and get a sense and a feel for it. It's, it's the golf course is all primed as if the Ryder mm. Cup could be played in the morning yeah. in terms of, you know, greens and speeds and all that. And, you know, I'll get some good pins out for you. And that's what we did. And it was a good idea. But it was a strange place to be at that time. Yeah. It was, it was know. empty, wasn't it? It was eerie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I took three of my pals up and we went up. We had a great time. Mm-hmm. We had a great day out. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've kind of hinted at this already, but I mean, how much attention are you paying to the captaincy? Are you thinking even at that point, I fancy that job? No. Somewhere down the road? No. no. So when did that? I'm just interested in teams. I'm interested yeah. in management. It didn't even cross my mind because back then it was, you know. Major not, winners. Were exactly. You're not getting a captaincy until you're a multiple major winner. Yeah. Um, You know, and even at that, it's not 100%. And so... Although Sam was a good example for you. I mean, yeah, Sam, Sam was manager. was an example, but you know, Sam was was a you know a dying of professional golf. He was one I mean, step down below that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was everything you know in a European context, and you know had won so many tournaments and 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 miles past where I where I was as a player. It didn't even cross my mind. The first time it cr- crossed my mind was actually when Seve said it to me at the Royal Trophy once over in Thailand. What were you picking up then, even subconsciously? I don't know. I mean, he, he said it to me. Uh, we're in the locker room before the singles on Sunday, and I went in, and uh, I remember I had a pal of mine from Ireland over with me, 
and uh, Seffi walks in. Uh, just me and my pal were sitting in my locker. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in Thailand, uh, Royal Trophy, and uh, my pal comes in. My, my pal was so funny. I still slag him about it. He was so familiar. Yeah, how are you, Seffi? How's it going? You know, like familiar, like he's you know he's his buddy. <laughs> and uh, uh, next of all, Seffi s- sits down beside me. So then my, my friend, kind of pal, kind of takes off and. So he, he's just talking. He said, you know, I've been really impressed this week. I've re- I liked what you've said at the team meetings and um, and, you know, you're a great player, you're a great player. And one day you'll be great captain. And, and, and I thought, really? Uh, I thought, wow. You know, I, I kind of only then is what I thought about. I don't even know what year that was. Um, Elizabeth captained me a couple of times out there in Monty. Um, no, Sevi captained me twice, I think, at that Royal Trophy. So I'm not even sure what one it was, but it was certainly around about the end of my Ryder Cup career. Yeah. There's a theme emerging in this. You, you seem to need an awful lot of convincing in almost everything before you, yeah, you're ready to go, sort of thing. Yeah, is that yeah. fair? I, I, yeah, I think it's an Irish thing. You know, mm-hmm. we don't come out bounding of confidence. You know, I, I, you know, I think we you have to earn it. It's it's you know, you get above your station back in Ireland, you get whipped into shape pretty yeah, quick. Well, same so, in Scotland, yeah, yeah. So you you have to earn it, and you have to earn it to yourself as well. So yeah, I, I guess that's you know kind of climbing the ladder mm-hmm. and you know getting secure on one rung before you go to the next rung yeah. you're not looking four rungs ahead um, I would say if you spoke to Pardick he'd have a similar view about himself and his career Tiff Tough Hybrid Bermuda means less work and more play tough by name and by nature this turf variety supplied exclusively by Lawn Solutions Australia is the perfect choice for your home lawn with superior drought tolerance, speedy recovery and toughness, Tiff Tough really is the smart grass. For more information and to find your nearest accredited supplier, head to lawnsolutionsaustralia.com.au. I'm going to give you some good news and some bad news at this point. Right. Uh, I was looking at your record in majors. Yeah. You played in 30. You mm. missed the cut in 15 of them. Oh, boy. And you had one top 10, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, the good news is... You were sixth in the 2004 PGA at Whistling Straits, and only one guy shot a better score than you in the last day. Mm, right. Do you remember who it was? 68 to your 69. Harrington? No, Todd Hamilton. Todd Hamilton, yeah, I would never have got that. But anyway, you were, you were only two shots out of the playoff. What's I was. Your, what's your memories of that week, and, and how close was it to... My mission that week was not to win the PGA Championship. My mission was to make the Ryder Cup team. Mm. I had made the team in 02. This was 04. I was on a run. That was about my eighth week in a row. I was playing every week I could to try to get points and get squeeze in. I wasn't in the team. Um, I was close to it, but I wasn't in it. Jeff Remesey was the guy who was ahead of me. Um, I was about 13th at that stage. I'd gone on a run. Mm-hmm. I was starting to find form. And I was desperate to make that team. There were so many players and Irish players who had made one walk Ryder Cup team. And I wanted to, you know, move out of that bracket and be a double mm. um, Ryder Cup player. And and and, and then, uh, ironically, I draw Jeff Remesey in the last round. He was my playing partner. Wow. And right up to the 16th, we were kind of to- tied um, if you look at his score, his will had a good score too. Mm. And uh, I made a birdie on, on 16 and moved one ahead of him. And then I think he might have bogeyed 17 and 18 and, and I finished par par. And it was about making right a cup points. That's what I was there for. And, and you know, it was a windy afternoon. The guys coming behind struggled. Clearly, I mean, the two scores under 70. Yeah, yeah. And it suited me. The golf course suited me whistling straights. I could chase it. I could run it. It was, uh, it was windy. Mm. Um, 
fast greens, always love fast greens. And, you know, big time atmosphere in America. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I finished two. I, in the end, I finished two out of the playoff, but I was never, I was never going to be in the playoff. Um, it was about having a big finish and, mm-hmm. and that's what it was. But yeah, I mean, my major, my major record, I found the U.S. Opens impossible. Mm. You know, I'm a better player now. I think I would do better in the U.S. Opens now than I did back then. I'm surprised. Then. I thought that would be the one that would suit you. You would most. think, yeah, I got intimidated. Right. I got intimidated and, um, you know, um, you know, I've said it before. I mean, my game, my game, it goes back to the belief thing. You know, my game was good enough to win a major championship, but my mind never got there. I, I never had the belief that I was going to win a major. Um, and the irony is when Darren and Pavlik started winning, I'm on the downslide of my career then, you know, and if they had to win their careers earlier, I think I would have given it a better run. You know, I think that's seeing seeing your peers winning would have probably given me a bit more belief than I had in myself. Christ, if he's winning majors, you know, it it can't be well, that. That was the influence Sevy had on the the yeah. group around him. Yeah, and that's yeah, exactly, exactly, and and that's how that's how I kind of felt as well too. And um, again, it was about maybe it's a restrictive mindset of not getting ahead of your station and not dreaming and shooting for the stars and believing that I could do it. It was a slowly, slowly, slowly process. And, and then when they started winning and Graham and all of that, I was kind of in my 40s now or late 30s. And my career was, you know, I was passive, been a Ryder Cup player. And, and it wasn't, I didn't have the same game, you know, and, and the game was changing around that time too, when it was becoming more about power. Um, and I didn't have that game, never played that game. So I kind of missed that window. Mm-hmm. So, so I blame them that they didn't win the right majors earlier. Yeah. Was the Ryder Cup the kind of limit of your ambition then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Mm-hmm. You know, I win tournaments on tour, which yeah. I did. Um, and, and, and Ryder Cup was my limit and, and I'm showing my face and playing in the majors. Um, it, the irony, you know, Brian Kyo, um, in, in Ireland, who does some great stuff, amateur and pro. And I came across, my mom keeps a lot of the stuff in Ireland. And, um, I came across an interview that I did in about 1993 after a year being on tour. And his question was, you know, what are your ambitions now? You've, you know, kept your card the first year and going forward. And, you know, and I outlined what my ambitions were. I wanted to win on tour. Um, and, you know, I wanted to have a long career in the game. I wanted to play in all the major championships, including Augusta. And I wanted to play Ryder Cups and win Ryder Cups. Well, you've done all those And things. achieved all those. That, that, that was my point. You know, I didn't say I want to win a major championship. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, there was a limiting mindset in there somehow. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where I got to. And it's funny though, when it turned into the captaincy, I had a different mindset. I had a very, if I believed as much in myself as a player as I did as a captain, I definitely would have won majors. We're moving into that um, mm. smoothly for once. Nice little segue <laughs> by you there. Um, you, this, you've always talked up the Seve Trophy as being yeah. the, the greatest preparation you ever had for yeah. being Ryder Cup captain. No doubt. That's um, where I got my belief. What did you do well? And what, what did you find that you were really good at? Man management and tactics. Um, they were the two things I think they came naturally to me I enjoyed it I had a buzz woke up in the morning with you know my stomach was turning with excitement it wasn't turning with fear I mean both Seve trophies I captained our team with all due respect was miles off the pace of theirs mm. uh, European team was very strong and several Ryder Cup players in their team um, and, and we were miles off the pace and you know, guys like Nick Doherty and Ollie Wilson and mm. Jamie Donaldson back then and Simon Dyson, 
you know, against, you know, the likes of Stenson and Carlson and Bjorn and, you know, guys that were established big time players in the game, um, in Europe and certainly in European context. And I mean, we were miles off the pace, but I, um, you know, I rallied them and, uh, I believed in momentum back then. I'd seen how momentum worked. Yeah. Um, I made sure I stacked the top of our team with momentum players, um, that would give us the best chance of, of, of starting the engine. And, and that's how I felt as a Ryder Cup player. You know, being a player who was always six to 12 in the team, the fact that the engine was going so strong from the, f- you know, first groups out made me tag along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what momentum is. Um, so I wanted to start the engine every day with some strong pairings. The only way we were going to beat these guys, we weren't going to beat it, beat them coming from behind. We're going to beat them by getting ahead and just keep on going and not looking around. Like I won that under 25s way back in, way back in the days and didn't look at a scoreboard, didn't look at anything. Um, and, and keeping them focused and, and having good pairings and good energies and, and having fun and, and, you know, I loved it. I mean, I, I really got into there. I, I got them. I like to think uh, I got them really fired up. I mean, they were chomping at the bit, really chomping at the mm. bit. And I loved it. I mean, we had no budget. We'd know nothing. The team meetings were in my room in the Sofitel in Versailles. <laughs> uh, everybody into this tiny little box room yeah. and, you know, lying on my bed, lying on the floor and the team meeting. And I was so up for it. I was so That's almost it. good in a way, though, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, they fired and, and we fired and we won the first one. I was like, Wow, this came easy. You know, I didn't have, I loved every second of it. There was no fear. There was no intimidation. You know, playing in my first majors, particularly playing in my first US Opens, I was like, I'd wake up and I go, I mean, I remember starting a US Open and congressional once and I went par par birdie. And my name was on the board. It's like, you know, I, I'm not going to stay up there for long. Just, oh, geez, you know, it's a matter of time. The one that yeah. else went. Yeah, yeah. I was there that week. I, yeah. I remember walking around that course yeah. and I could still, I was still playing off scratch or something at yeah. that point. I'm thinking, I could I break 90 on this golf course. Absolutely. It was, it most, was ridiculous. Yeah. And then yeah. when we went to uh, the black course in um, um, Beth Page. Beth Page. That was even tougher. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that was even tougher. Yeah. And uh, they intimidated the hell out of me. I was done before I hit a first shot. I mean, I missed a cut in both of them, and it's no surprise. I mean, I, I, I was done. Um, whereas, you know, the feeling in the captaincy was, you know, I had so much faith in the players and that I could get a performance out of them. Mm-hmm. And we did. And then and then I'm, now I'm thinking, right, I've been a three-time Ryder Cup player. I've now won the Savvy Trophy. Um you know, if I get another chance to be Seve Trophy captain, I, you know, I can push my, my nose in front here. Yeah, yeah. And I did. And Alazaglog gave me a second chance, along with a vice captaincy as well. And um, I, we did it again. We had a bit of a better team than we did the first time. Rory was coming through at that stage. He, was yeah. never, he wasn't the star he turned out to be, but he was, he'd made the team. And G-Mac was a, mm. I think G-Mac was a Ryder Cup player at the time. Um, they were the two that standouts. Uh Lee and Darren and Polter were on it as well too. So now we've a decent team. Half the team. So now I'm gonna, I'm kind of managing my peers and guys that I played in Ryder Cups with. Um, and that was somewhat a lot more difficult actually than it was dealing with the younger guys. Guys who had bigger playing records than me. Yeah. What's your theory on partnerships? How much is it personality? How much is it style of play? How much is it how far they hit the ball? To me, it was more style of play, but it was also matching it to the golf course. You know, certainly in, in Glen Eagles when we did it here, I'm a great believer in, Courses for courses. 
and you know style of golf course is going to suit us. You know why I picked Lee Westwood over Luke Donald. Yeah. You know a horse for I'm a great believer and I still am. Yeah. You know Cameron Smith won last week. I, I call him at the start of the week because I saw the weather forecast. I know what St Andrews is like, and it's about good wedge play and good putting. Everything's it's big hitting, big hitting. Yes, it's important. But it's more about good putting because it was going to be a low scoring week. It was going to be 20 under par. That's what I predicted at the start of the week. So horse for courses, who can, who can, who can put lights out for four days? Yeah. And, you know, he highlighted it to me or he highlighted himself to me. And, and that's, that's why I had him as a pick. And, and that's, it was the same here with the golf course. You know, look at the par threes. Who are the iron players? Who are the big hitters? Oh, we, it's golf course. It's wet. It's September. It's Scotland. It's Glen Eagles. Big heavy golf course. We're going to need big hitters. We need a big heavy team. You know, we, we, uh, my picks have got to be based around, you know, well, heaviness. What came first then is do you set the course up to, to no, pick your course. picks or do you, do you pick the people for the course? You see, again, a lot of what I did in the captaincy was, was, was about simplicity. I went to David Garland two years before, right after I got the job, and I said, David, me and you aren't going to have any conversations about course setup. No. As far as I'm concerned, the European Tour setup is slightly different than the PGA Tour. We have the Johnny Walker here every year. Whatever you do for the Johnny Walker, we've all played in the Johnny Walker. All the guys in the team will have played in the Johnny Walker. They know it. So that makes let's, perfect sense. Let's not complicate things. Mm. Let's just do European tour setup, what you would do for the Johnny Walker. All of our players had had a top 10 in the Johnny Walker. They'd all played well in it. Mm. Um, they knew the golf course in that style of setup. Let's not overcomplicate it. And then I told all the players the same thing, but swore them all to secrecy because I didn't want to tell America what we were going to do. Yeah. So you know, I, I played a little bit of game in the media about 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 the golf course and the setup, and yeah, we have a few things in store and all of that, but we, yeah. we never did. And David <laughs> Garden was laughing when I yeah. come out because yeah. you know he he'd had his brief and off he went. Mm-hmm. He, you know, it was a pretty easy setup for him. Yeah, I mean that you're, you're right. That's it's it's so simple, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, why, why, change, why change it? it? We're used yeah. to it. We're yeah. used to that setup, mm. you know, and don't overcomplicate it. You know, we got big hitters just like they do. So there's no point in pinching in at 320, mm. um, you know, because, you know, that's going to hurt Rory McIlroy and Sergio Garcia who are on the team. Yeah. I wanted you to talk a bit about um, you getting the job. I mean, it was a bit of a saga in the end. I think it was I mean, more it than a bit. It wasn't straightforward <laughs> in, the, in any way, shape or form. I mean, talk me through that a bit. It must have been a real emotional roller coaster. It was an emotional roller coaster big time for me because I felt it wasn't fair that I was even it was even being considered that I shouldn't be the captain. Mm. My C V was outstanding in terms of captaincy. You know, I'd done yeah. two Sevy trophies. Uh we'd won both times and comfortably on both occasions. I'd managed the younger guys to a performance, I'd managed the older guys to a performance. I'd been, I'd, I'd been, I'd done two vice captaincies and I'd like to think both captains will say that I was very strong as a vice captain and made a lot of good calls in that. So I was ready. I was primed. I, I was chomping at the bit and looking forward to being the captain. And then, you know, out of left field, Darren decides that without talking to me, despite telling me a year previously that, you know, Good luck, you know, you got my full support. This was after the Sevy Trophy when I captained him. Yeah. You'll be a great Ryder Cup captain. He wrote me a letter afterwards, how how great you were as a captain. You know, you've got it. It's come easy to you. You were brilliant. We all love playing for you. You'll be a great Ryder Cup captain. You got my full support. So I kind of that's where I, I feel I am. And yeah. and all of a sudden then there's a press <coughs> well, it, conference. It had a big effect on your relationship, didn't it? You yeah, know. it did. It yeah. did. Not now. I mean we've yeah. got over it and mm-hmm. I'm a believer in in moving on. You know, we kissed and made up mm-hmm. and yeah. and you know, 
uh, Darren is, you know, feels he got it wrong and he made mistakes on, based on wrong information and, you know, he, he's regretted it and he wrote me a really heartfelt letter. Now, anybody who knows Darren doesn't write a lot of letters. No. Um, and it was really <laughs> heartfelt and he was emotional when he spoke to me and I could see. Yeah. He was hurting about what he did and, and how, why he, he got it wrong. Yeah. And that's okay. We all make mistakes yeah. and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I feel, uh, you know, Darren's, Darren's one of my dearest friends and still is and, and, Yes, there was a period of two or three years there where things were really rocky, haven't come through so much. But, you know, I, I think our bond is actually stronger now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. There's a huge difference listening to you, Paul, talking about yourself as a captain, as talking about yourself as a player. Yeah, I know. I mean, you use confidence when it comes to the captaincy yeah. far more than a player. <clears throat> if you'd had the, that attitude as a player, yeah. how much more do you think you could have done? I know, that's what I said earlier. I know if I believed myself as much as a player as I did, um, the game never came easy to me, Huggy. You know what I mean? Think about it. There's a reason why I was 25 when I turned pro. You know, um, Darren Clark, Monty fall out of bed and just look yeah. down the fairway and smash it down the middle of the yeah. fairway. Um, no, the game hang comes. On though. <clears throat> Excuse me, Monty was, he was a bit of a late developer as well. Yeah, but when he came on tour, then the game became easy to him. Well, he had yeah, that faith. By then, yeah. And he knew exactly <clears throat> what the ball was going well, to do. I, I've told this story before and I'll, I'll tell it quickly to you. I mean, uh, Monty went to America to be, go to college at yeah. the end of 1983. And at that point, he wasn't in the top dozen amateurs in Scotland. He wasn't mm. in the home international team. Yeah. I, I was at the time because I'm getting picked ahead of Monty, but then, which is ridiculous, obviously. But the following, he, came, he was in America for about nine months. He came back, played a practice round at Formby before the amateur. Yeah. With Philip Parkin, who won it the year before. Yeah. And Colin Douglas. a great amateur, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. And myself. And, and yeah. Colin Douglas and I took them on for reasons that, you know, yeah. I can't fathom now. But anyway, after about four or five holes at Formby, mm. I turned to Colin Dalglish and say, have you noticed anything? And he went, oh, God, yeah. He says, this guy's unbelievable. Mm. He was miles better than us. Mm. And yet he wasn't, he was, you know, relatively mm. unheard of mm. almost nine months before. Mm. It was extraordinary. And he was about 22, 23 then. Yeah. No, 21, 22 at least. I mean, so he was kind of similar to you in that respect. He did. He did. But, you know, the way he swung the club and, and, and the ownership he had of his game was just phenomenal. And, and you know, the level of consistency he had. And he figured what Monty did brilliantly, and I always admire him, he never made it complicated, you know, mm. going back to that point yeah. again. Well, he swung the same way when he was 15. Exactly. Yeah. And he never went down the road of trying to change the swing or do something different. And he understood the game. He, his golfing maturity came very early to him. You know, if I had the golf maturity I have now, you know, back back when I yeah. was playing with a, yeah. with a really good game, yeah. I'd have been a far but better player. But there's a reason player. it's called maturity, of course. Yeah, yeah. but some, some guys get that maturity mm. earlier. I mean, I was a worker, I was a grafter, I was a grinder, mm. I was a battler, but I, I didn't have a golfing understanding the way I do now. Mm. Monty had the golfing understanding as well as all of those traits and a pretty decent game. Not an amazing game, but a decent game. And and that golfing maturity w- was the big reason and he's, he realised... You know, I don't need to. I, I can certainly play this way. I'll just get. I'll just keep doing this, this, this. The ball will come out this way. It'll move that way, and that's what I'll do. And what I'm going to do is, I'm not going to over practice it. I know exactly what it is. I have my DNA. I'm going to practice on that every day. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to fool around. I'm not going to waste energy. I'm going to rest most of the time. I'm going to go back to my room. I'm not going to hit balls. I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to come out like a greyhound out of the box the next day. And I'm going to outcompete these guys because I have a game that's going to be based on consistency. And he never got sidetracked. All the rest of us got sidetracked. I yeah. got sidetracked. All the time yeah. even working with Bob I got sidetracked mm-hmm. you know and I'd work with 
with, with Bob for a week and I'm hitting the ball nicely going to range and then I'd miss a few and then I'd start something new and I'd look for a new thing and then a new tip and then I'd ask somebody for a tip and you know before you know it you're climbing I call it yeah. climbing <clears throat> climbing branches you know rather than climbing the middle of the tree yeah. and, and, and you go off the branches and you're kind of going sideways then you're not going um, but Monty was you know I don't know if he if he harbors any regrets about how he handled his career and didn't go to America enough but I mean he did some extraordinary things I mean he got to number two in the world mm. Back then, basically playing in Europe most yeah. nearly all the time, which yeah. is I thought was an incredible achievement. Monty was great. Yeah. Monty was and great. Fourth I mean, was a bad week for him at that point. Yeah, I mean in Ryder Cups too, John. I mean he was he was phenomenal. I mean again, you know, when you don't have the confidence and you're in there and you're one of the one of the weaker players in the team, you're the six to twelve guys on the team. You're not one the one to six on the team. You're not a Lee. You're not a Sergio. You're not a Darren. You're not a Monty. Um, you know, when you're, you're down a month, you know, you look to the older guys in the team, you know, and again, that was a dynamic I was aware of when I was captain too, about the older guys leading as well. Um, and, you know, you'd look around the room and, and you could see who was scared, who was up for it, who was not, who was a little bit anxious. Uh, and then you look at Monty and just the energy he had, you know, and Sergio. Yeah. Just bring it on. I can't wait till and great for Friday players, morning. I'm sure to see that. That's what I mean. It's yeah. you feed off that energy. Mm-hmm. I can't wait till Friday morning. And then, you know, what they would say about the Americans and the arrogance of the Americans as far as they saw it and all of those things. And, you know, I can't wait to get stuck into these guys and we're going to show them. And, you know, this is great. You know, just don't say anything in the media. Say, oh, no. Americans you know. had their share of guys who looked, you know, the eyes were wide and didn't look too happy in that environment. I mean, so we you see some extraordinary things in the Ryder Cup, don't you? Yeah, you do. You do. And uh, I mean, our, the team rooms I was in, the energy was just great, particularly from the lead players. Lee was the same. You know, this, this quiet calmness. And it wasn't giddiness. It wasn't even Poulter. There's no giddiness or Poulter behind the scenes. He's actually the opposite. You know, he's, he's actually really calm. You know, we come to the team meeting, certainly in later years, and, you know, hoodies had come out then, and he would wear his hoodie with the hoodie up, and he'd just sit there. And, you know, I remember having team meetings and him, you know, looking down, I had the players in a couch in a U-shaped couch sort of looking at me with the vice captains behind and, and looking at them all and, you know, making sure of eye contact with all of them so they're all feeling included as I'm talking to them and just looking at this steely Claire Poulter looking at me, you know, and yeah. just through, like yeah. Dark Vader, through, yeah, yeah. through this hoodie. <laughs> and, father. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but it was, it was, a, it was a focus glare that he had, you know, and he was taking in every word that I was saying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is that Medina thing still the most extraordinary thing? I'm using that word a lot. Yeah. That I've ever, certainly I've ever seen. Apart from Seve at Oak Hill, the first nine holes against Tom Lehman. Yeah. In a different you, kind of way. You knew but, that was, mm. yeah, you knew that was the one in Oak Hill was never going to keep He just couldn't keep As long as Tom Lehman kept doing what he was doing, Seve was not going to beat no. him. Um, the only thing was that, that Lehman was going to get frustrated and then make mistakes and then Seve could have beaten him. But, um, but Medina, absolutely. I mean, I know I get stick for using the word again. I've used it already in this interview, but, um, you know, momentum. I mean, if anybody wants to know what momentum is and it's not, you know, and everybody wants to know about the value of a captain, you know, we won that off the golf course. We won it with captain decisions. And for people to say that the captain has nothing to do with it, of course the players are front and center. There's absolutely yes, but strategy and tactics can be the difference. And we got it right. We got it right. Polter gave us momentum. Absolutely, he gave us momentum on the Saturday night, but we took advantage in how we put the team out on the Sunday. And, you know, we, we, we created, you know, like I said earlier, you know, we started the engine with those first five or six. And, and two things happen when you do that. 
first of all, it energizes the guys in the second six coming behind. I was that soldier. That's how I felt when I was down the bottom. I always looked to see what was happening, the energy coming from the top and the noise coming from the top. You knew the European roars and that certainly helps you. It gives you, it buys you, it gives you confidence. It, uh, you know, it drags you along with it. But what it also does is it de-energizes the other team and de-energizes the other six on the other team. Yeah. And it feels like they're swimming against the tide. And, and that's what momentum is. It, it's, it's, it's really important. Now, can you control it? Absolutely no. But what you do is you give yourself the best chance for it to work your way. And you do that by putting either form players, form who, players who can deal with the big occasion, uh, or your best players that, you know, in certain positions. You know, what, uh, what I did, you know, with the lead in here in, um, in Glen Eagles. You know, what I was afraid of, of doing was losing momentum, like, like the Americans had done in Medina. So what I did was like a firebreaker. Um, you know, I had, you know, I had two guys playing well that figured one might lose, but both won't lose. Then one of my weaker players or guy who was off his form. Mm. Then I would have two more guys and then another guy. Right, so okay. I kind of hid them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's how I put out the team because I was trying to stall any momentum America could get. Mm. Um, and, and also preparing, you know, G Mac as a number one For a year in advance. I had identified G Mac as the guy I wanted number one. Uh, and I just wanted to see how things were evolved and make sure his form was good and he made the team and all of those things. And, mm. and he also used and him then, with du- Dubuisson. I needed who's him. Who's an odd character, to say the least. Yeah, you know. yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer. I've always been a believer in energy as well, too, and, and tiredness. You know, we all get fatigued and tired, and it, particularly in a Ryder Cup. If you play all four matches the first two days, it's incredibly draining. There's a reason why so few players have, have won five matches out of five in a Ryder Cup, because you're so drained. No matter how good a player you are, think about it. Seventy-two holes of that high energy in two days, and then expect to go out in a singles because yeah, you can't coast on any of the holes. Yeah, every hole's the same. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know what I wanted G Mac prepared for in the singles was that I wasn't going. He was going to be lightly raced in the first two days, mm-hmm. so that he had that energy to take on the number one position. You know, and try to you know again, it all worked out well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I said this to you earlier this week. I think that you changed the way it was done, which you kind of poo-pooed modestly but I think you did I mean the, the captaincy I mean it, it wasn't you were the you weren't the first non-major winner to, to do it mm. but you definitely did it differently from how it had been done before you went deeper I thought I went deeper yeah I don't <clears> think <throat> I did anything that hadn't been tried and tested before um, but what I did was I, I, I thought about what worked and what didn't work and, and you know took what worked and rolled it out I call it the template Um now I said it in the media beforehand. I said, look, my job here, I want, cause I wanted, to, when you're in the media as captain, and certainly with me, I didn't have the big golfing CV so that everybody was going to listen to what I had to say. So I knew that, you know, we're now in the age of social media. We're in the age of all the players having phones and, you know, everything you say is going to be replicated out. Um, so it was important. My press conferences were really, really well structured and organized so that I didn't say things that could be misinterpreted. But one of the messages I wanted to get, because when you're speaking to the media, you're speaking to the players too, even though they say they're not, yes. they don't read the media, they're <laughs> they, all reading they the They do, yes. Absolutely. Mm. So what, what, I, what I was really conscious of doing was basically saying to the players, I got this, you know, trust me, I got it. I might not have the CV of a lot of you guys or guys, captains of the past, but I understand the role. I got this. I've been that soldier. I've been, you know, riding shotgun to all this success. I know what, I know what we need to do to win. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that, I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but that, that, is that the most important week of your professional life, given that what you do now, a lot of it stems from the fact that you were a winning Ryder Cup captain? Or is that oversimplifying it a bit? 
I think it's simp- oversimplifying <coughs> it because I didn't feel that much pressure in it, to be honest. I didn't feel like my career was over and I'd never get a job again or I'd never make any more money. Yeah, but I'm talking about here. commentary and all that. Kind yeah, of I didn't know it was going to spiral there. I had no mm-hmm. idea I was going to do commentary. If you'd have said me back then that, you know, my future would be, you know, I only work 10 weeks a year, by the way, in commentary. Everything's I do more. But um, if you told me I'd have done that, I'd have said, no, I don't. I didn't think so. I thought I would have gone more into business than I have done. I've done a bit in business, but... I thought I might have got involved in a company, but, you know, the kind of opportunity never came my way. Um, so kind of the, I'm doing the TV, a mix, mixture of ambassadorial work and, you know, other stuff that I'm doing. And um, So, yeah, but I, I didn't feel pressurized. I didn't feel under pressure. Again, it goes back to that belief thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you, know, if, if you feel like you know what you're doing, there's less pressure, I think. I think so. And the other thing about it is um, I wasn't afraid of losing. You know, as a player, I was I, I was afraid of missing a cut. I was afraid of, you know, not playing well. I was afraid of having to go home on a Friday night. And so you, there's always fear when you're playing. And some players drive, that drives them. Pardick always talks about that. The more fearful I am, the better I play. Um, I, I haven't been that way. That, that's not what gets the best out of me. He's different. He's he is different. different. He loves the battle. That's why. Yeah. He loves the battle. He loves when the odds are against him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when he thrives and is at his best. Yeah. Um, but you know, when when I knew I was going into the last round with a chance to win, and I just knew I was going to play well, whether I won or not was irrelevant. But I just knew that I was going to play well. If somebody played better than me. Good luck to them. But I was going to play well. That's that was good enough for me, and it it wasn't a desperation to win. It was I'm going to play really well here. And it was the same with the winning putt in 2002. Yeah, I was getting I, to that. But yeah, I knew I was going to hit a great putt. Did I know I was going to hold it? No, but I knew I was going to hit a great putt. And that was good enough for me. Yeah. And it's the same with the captaincy. I knew I was going to do a good job. Yeah. So what the, the what Americans the did better. Good luck to them. Yeah. But I knew that I was not going to get afraid. I was not going to be a rabbit in the headlights. The job was not going to be too much for me. I was going to deliver. Yeah. And sometimes... When you deliver, but somebody does better, well, good luck to them. So what's the highlight? The hole in that pot of being the winning captain? <laughs> well, I've been asked that I mean, a lot. There's one A and one B. Sure. Yeah. It's how do you separate it? I mean, look, there's there's two things. It's two very different emotions. The emotion is pure ecstasy in the 2002. Um, you know, it, it was being in the zone. Big smelly looking zone. water you dived into as well, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I, didn't have an, I didn't dive in. I was, didn't have an <laughs> I think in 2002, the winning pot was pure ecstasy of in the moment, in the moment. You're not thinking too far ahead. You're not thinking behind. You're just living the moment. You've got a pot. There's the ball. There's the hole. You know you're going to hit a great pot. You're excited about hitting this pot. You hit this pot. You don't know if it's going to go in, but you've hit this pot. It's now running t- towards the hole, and then it goes in the hole, and bomb. It's like the the champagne cork comes off and it's just pure unbelievable from the, from your toes right up to your head of this rush of adrenaline yeah um and and that's what that was i didn't have any of that at the at, at the captaincy there was never adrenaline to that level um i made a point that week of making sure my heart rate was really slow uh, i was make a point that week of less chat not being excitable and strong body language to the players um and somewhat laid back so i kind of i made sure i sucked adrenaline out of my body that week because i 
I didn't want the players to see me hyped yeah. up because yeah. that was going to give them bad energies and if I looked worried in the face. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing was I stayed away. You know, when they're on the golf course, you know, you don't, yeah. captains don't win right across. I've heard you say that before, it. that you, you weren't around that much. No, yeah. I kept out of the way. What, what good is it to me being on there? Well, I, I didn't see the value in the captain. I mean, as a Ryder Cup captain, you know, my job was not to tell Rory McIlroy, oh, this is a five iron. Oh, the group ahead <laughs> hit six iron over here. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I think, I think you should hit six iron again. You know, who am I to say that? And, and I, what I did is, again, is to go back to the simplicity and the clarity. I learned all this in the Seve Trophy and it was, it was, you know, a meeting with the caddies every night. And it was like, first week I said, guys, here's the deal. I will not be speaking to any player at any stage during the week once they go off the first tee, right? You and your player are got here because, you know, you've had huge success. You understand each other so well. Who am I to get involved and contaminate that relationship or get involved in that decision making? And it's the same when you've got a partner and a partner's caddy. Don't be taking advice from your playing partner. Yeah. You take it from you and your player. Keep it simple. Mm -hmm. It's the same with the setup of the golf course. You keep things simple. We do what we do. We do what we're trained to do week in, week out. Yeah. And that's where the decision making comes. Now, for any reason, if I have to speak to a player, I will not go and speak to him directly. I'll ask you first as the caddy to tell me when I can speak to them. Right. So I empowered the caddies. And I really believe that because I didn't want to, if a player was in a bad mood, I didn't want him to be, make it worse by me going up and asking him a question. If I had a question to be asked, I needed the caddy to read to me, when can I have a chat? And and we had only one situation during the week when I needed to speak to the player during play, and it was Rory and, you know, when Sergio, um, you know, to see if he'd play with Sergio and arrested Sergio the second day when, you know, the stuff went on with, with Nick Fallo and all of that, and Sergio wasn't playing. We took him out, we rested him, but I needed to put him back in again because I needed him to play before the singles, and I asked him who he wanted to play with, he wanted to play with Rory, and, um, and I had already kind of planned for him to play with Rory, but I needed, Rory didn't know that while he was on the golf course, but I needed to put the team in. Yeah. And I didn't want to put the team in without okaying it with Rory. So I went to JP about the eighth or ninth hole, I remember. And um, I said, JP, I need to speak to... That's Rory's caddy at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I need to speak to uh, to Rory. Uh, and I remember, this is JP, who mm. I brought out on tour. Mm. He was selling fax machines for a commission-only basis in Ireland. Had no money. I was looking after him. I took him out on tour for a few weeks. He ended up caddying for me. Then moved on to Thomas Bjorn, Darren Clark, mm. Ernie Els. Great success. And then went on to Rory McIlroy. So we're pals from way back since I was 15, 16, playing up in Baltray. Yeah. And, uh, and he says, all right, all right. I'll, I'll tell you when. I'll tell you when. And he's kind of off. You know, he's, he's in his own. He made me wait three holes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm walking like a puppy dog behind yeah. the game. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of st staying cleared out of the way. And then he, after about the, and I wasn't actually three holes. I said it to him on the eighth and he said to me walking down the par three, 10 down the hill. He said, okay, you can have a word of him now. So I went up and I said, just very quickly, I said, look, are you okay playing with, with, with Sergi in the afternoon? He needs a bit of help. Uh, he's asked to play with you. You're good with that. He said, yeah, no problem. Put him with me. And that was it. And that was the only time I talked to a player during play. During, again, it's simplicity. It's it's not overcomplicating it. And sometimes you can overcomplicate it. And, you know, I learned, you know, he was really good at that. He was really good at that. Of the three captains I played under, the best guy for that was Woozy. You know, Woozy, nobody ever talks about Woozy as a radical captain, but Woozy kept it so simple. Mm -hmm. yeah. He had great pairings in place. He put them in place again. He rolled out. Yeah. He stood back. He let them go on. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, that, that kept things really simple. The temptation must be there to do something else, but really, why? Why would you? You know, you know, yeah. Unless something needs to be fixed, but if it's all planned and you're organised and it's going according to plan, you don't need to infiltrate it with, you know, trying to be the smartest guy in the room. 
I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned the caddies there, and it's on my list. Um, they're now no longer with us, sadly. Uh, Edinburgh Jimmy, who, I mean, the, the most incredible character I've come across as a caddy. Uh, it, it was there was language used that we can't possibly ah, use on this uh, podcast, but everybody um, would have loved the stories. But he was um, he wouldn't he live was in from this. the same part of the world as me, and he always kind of you know had a wee soft spot for me, I think, because of that. And I, I love talking to him. He, we, all I got ever was abuse. Oh yeah, but that but was a sign that. that he liked you. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah so. and a laugh at the Is end. Is there a story you can tell about him before? <laughs> God, sorry well, have, that, a think, have a think about uh, it because I wanted to ask you about um, well, first of all he, he caddied for me for you know he probably caddied for me most of my career and yeah. never ever ever once did I ever see him tur- in bad form turn up in bad form yeah. always laugh and joke and yeah. funny and mm-hmm. a character but tough as nails behind it all tough as nails sorry go on well I, I, obviously I need to talk to you a little bit about commentary before we finish um that's a big, you know, overall it's only 10 weeks a year. It seems like more. Yeah, no, because I do the bigger ones and people yeah. watch, yeah. Um, what's your philosophy on that? And what, what um, have you had any tips on it? What, who have you talked to? What's your kind of feeling about how it should be done? Again, it's a complicated business. It is, yeah. I, I got thrown in at the deep end and, you know, Jason Wesley, who runs um, Sky Golf, you know, um, he's a bit like Des and Darson Jr. It's tough love. Um and thrown into the deep end and if you're doing a good job nothing is said mm. but if you mess up yeah, he'll you tell know. you why yeah. uh, but not in an aggressive way yeah. but he say look I didn't like what you're doing there or dumb bum bum and and I like that I like to be managed that way you know I don't need somebody telling me how great I am yeah. um, but I do need if I'm getting it wrong um, so I, I think I've evolved over the years, for sure, you evolve. You know, my preparation is different now. I think I'm more detailed in my preparation. It's I, I'd like to think it's more relevant to what's going on. Uh, I understand the game. I understand the players. I understand the psychology. Obviously, been there, know what it's like. Um, obviously, I've never won a major championship, and you know that's a stick. But you did come sixth. I did come sixth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's one top ten. Uh, but you know it's a stick that's thrown at me a lot you know uh, how does he how does he know he's never won a major championship but Brando. You know, I mean he's you know. yeah and, and Brando's brilliant I love working mm. with Brandle. I, I think he's great at what he does and you know the, you know I go back to the same thing you know Alex Ferguson never won a premiership title does that mean he can't be have an insight and be a great captain and does that mean he can't have an insight in the game mm. because he never won a major championship you know does you know according to that logic the only person who can talk on golf is is Jack Nicklaus mm. and behind that Tiger Woods yeah. you know so that logic doesn't stack up um, you know you can understand the game and not have you know reached a very very pinnacle in terms of wins um, but I did play at that level I know what it's like and you know I, I know I know what it's like and in some ways when the game doesn't come easy to you and you have to dig it out of the ground it makes you think about it differently and and, and, and more deeply Um and I think that's where I'm at. And I think that's where I was at on my captaincy because it never was something that ever came easy to me. And I, I thought about everything I could, you could think about in golf and sometimes to my detriment. But um, in, in a lot of ways, then it prepared me for being a good captain because I had thought so deeply about it and thought so deeply also about Ryder Cups and why they work and why we've been successful. Um, and I like to think of the same things I do with, with TV. I'm constantly evolving. I do an amazing amount of preparation every single day. Uh, I'll show you on my phone here. I got, I got, <clears throat> I've got, um, 
I mean, just you know, some of my files on my phone are just, I have to just bought new data yeah. have to upgrade my data because all I'm doing is I'm copying and pasting every single day of the year, 365 days a year. I'll wake up and I read the golf media. You know, I've, I've, how, are we, how are we doing? Huh? How are we doing? Golf media. Good. Yeah. Very good. I mean, interesting. And I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite liberal in terms of, I understand different views. I, I, I'm not, this is the way it has to be and this is the only way and everybody else who thinks otherwise is wrong I like I love when somebody comes at it from a different angle you're good at that that's why I read you a lot (laughs) somebody who's coming at it from a different angle that I hadn't thought of or it's a controversial angle Um, and they're the ones I I enjoy because I want to see the justification of why they're coming at it from that way and what I do is I, I won't copy and paste the whole article but there'll be pieces coming out of it that I'll copy and paste. I'll put it in my file on my phone or on my iPad, which is linked up to my phone. And, you know, so I have reams and reams and reams of, of info and, and it's all under different folders, you know. So, you know, Saudi at the moment is getting bigger and bigger, bigger we're, files. We're going to get to that in a minute, but that'll um, be our finish. Yeah. You know, European <laughs> tour. Um, you know, another one, Rory McElroy be one, Justin Thomas will be one, John Ram will be one. And, you know, when I read something relevant about them or what they've done, like, you know, John Ram gives an interview, for example, and he's just spent six months, or sorry, he's just spent six weeks taking a break and this is what he was doing. Oh, that's interesting. Bum, bum, bum. And I might summarize it myself in my own words or I'll copy and paste something and put it into John Ram file. So, you know, three months later, we're talking about John Ram coming into the Masters and, well, he's had a six-week break and this is what he did in a six-week break. So I'm not having to remember it. Yeah. So so that's where a lot of my my stuff comes from. It doesn't come from just a week before and, and you know, for the exam then, you know, again, going back to the a – a lot of the same principles of captaincy, you know, preparing for the exam. And the exam on TV is um, is 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 a difficult one because you make a mistake and, you know, you're going to get – killed by it you know well, not by the bosses in any way because they all understand how difficult it is live tv and you can make a mistake um but you know it's it's um it's you know social media now is you know in, in a lot of ways it's, it's a horrible a horrible place because you know it's amazing how people think it they have the right to be so personal you know and ask for somebody to be sacked you know i mean you know, it's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I look at the, the pundits on soccer as well, too. You know, Gary Neville is on or Roy Keane is on. And, you know, and, and I mean, what people actually say, it's just... And then you look at these people, you look at the profile and, you know, it's a picture of a dog. So, you know... And they've got eight key, followers. Yeah, <laughs> keyboard warrior. And, yeah. Well, then you have the other thing with bots. You know, that's another big problem as well going on. And I can understand Elon Musk, um, you know, wanting to know what's going on there with bots. You know, what, th- there's there's a lot of noise now through social media and a lot of it is manufactured through computers yeah we're going to finish up in the last few minutes um you've been very generous with your time um and i'm aware that we're over an hour already so um live golf by the time this people hear what we're saying today things will have changed no doubt so if you can talk about it in general terms i mean it's it's a bad thing in the terms in the sense that um, golf is being split down mm. the middle here, and everybody seems to be Diluted. taking sides. And yeah, it's not, there's a lot of bad aspects, far more bad than good yeah. at, at this moment, at least. Yeah, what what's your feeling on looking at it from slightly on the sidelines? Uh well, I'm part of the establishment, as I said <clears> during <throat> the week. You know, I'm very I'm, I'm on the board of the tour, and you know. Um, I stand by all the decisions the European Tour Board have made. I've really enjoyed that. That's been a big, steep learning curve for me. More so than captaincy, more so than TV. Um, but with some very, very bright, smart, clever people on that board, business people that I've really enjoyed mm. and learned from. Um, 
a chairman as well too, how he chairs meetings, how he moves things on, um, you know, how to read balance sheets and, you know, um, integrity and governance and all of those things. So it's been a big, big, steep learning curve for me. I've enjoyed it. It's been an interesting time, certainly for the European tour the last five years. Um, I think, um, there's competition now on the pitch, um, from outside of the tours. Um, and, uh, they're coming at it in a different way. Time will prove, you know, t- time, time will tell whether they're proven right or not, whether the game does, should be based around team events with a, you know, a, a Formula One model, if you want to call it that. Um, and that, that, that the public out there who, who ultimately will decide, not anybody else, uh, whether this is successful and they want to watch it. Um, personally, you know, as much as I love team events, I don't think that's the, the model that excites me. No. Um, shotgun starts doesn't excite me. 54 holes doesn't excite me. Hoopa and, you know, rock music and all of that stuff doesn't excite me. I'm a traditionalist. I like the history of the game. I like the traditions of the game. Um, and I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm very much on that side of the fence. I think what's interesting and what live will do is they will change how people look at the business of golf. Um, not the public, how the administrators will look at it and realize how exposed the game is while players are not contracted. Mm. And uh, I, I think that's, I think that's inevitable, isn't it? I though? think it is inevitable. I think I've been saying that a long behind closed doors for five years. You look back at all the minutes of the meetings and I've been saying this for four or five years. You know, how can you? And this was before Liv came on and the Saudis come on. This was about, you know, players not playing in events. And how can we have an event when we don't know who's going to play? You know, somebody comes, you walk into me and go, bum, Paul, there's $20 million. Do you want to have an event? Bum, bum, bum. We're going to go, yeah. And you go, before I give you the $20 million, who's playing? Mm. And we're going to say, well, you know, we'll ask him and we'll ask. And yeah. you're going to say, what do you mean? I'm giving you 20 million bucks. He said, when I go down and I get a Formula One, I know mm. that Lewis Hamill's coming. I know Verstappen's coming. You know, if I spot, if I, if I buy a, a premiership team, I know what, you know, what matches we're going to be playing. Yeah. You know, Mo Salah doesn't decide which matches he wants to play in. Um, so, so golf is, is very exposed with independent trader status mm-hmm. in this modern game. Yeah. Um, and what we've seen, the trend from top players, we've done analysis on this and I've done analysis on this, you know, back when, when, when Nick Faldo was in 1996 before Tiger came on, Nick Faldo, Greg Norman, Tom Lehman were top players in the world. You know, they were playing 30 plus events a year between 30 and 35. Now the top players are playing between 20 and 24. Yeah. And they've taken 10 tournaments out. So that means there's le- there's 10 tournaments, a third of their schedule is less. They're making so much money, they don't have to play every week the way those guys would have done in, in the 90s. So that's put a huge amount of pressure on fields. Um, and, and we've actually, what we've done, instead of countering it with a smaller schedule, we've actually increased our schedule. So now you have a double whammy going on, and that's why you've now got a diluted product anyway. Yeah. Um, now you throw on top of that interesting dynamic, you put in the fact that they can actually leave the two tours and they can go over and play uh, on another tour. Um, you know, why are we not contracting them to stay with us? Yeah. And it's like a transfer. If they want to go and play another tour, fine, there's a fee. Yeah. But they should be contracted. And, 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 you know, so, so that's, that's where I see it. I think the whole business of golf within the next three years will be changed. And, and I think it'll be for the better. And I think it'll be easier for the administrators, for Keith Pelley and Jay Monaghan to then govern the game. 
and then to really grow the game, having control of the product. Yes, it'll make, they'll mean they'll have to pay out a lot of money to the top players, yeah. but that's okay. Yeah. No problem with that. You know, you, you, you divide up the financial pie differently. So instead of having your 15 and $20 million tournaments, you know, they might be five or they might be points or whatever. And then a points table at the end of the year, just like Formula One is divided yeah. up. But the main thing is the contract. And then you get your personal contracts on top of it. Yeah. So you're still making a lot of money and, 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 um, it's just it's a division of the of the pie that will give more security to the tours so that they can really sell the product and grow the product. Is that the end result that you think will happen or is that the end result that you think should happen? Both. I think it's inevitable. I think Liv have, have shown the tours that, you know, the players, you know, which has taken the tours by surprise, mm. have said, I'm going with the money. Uh, it's not about the loyalty. It's not about that. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? I'm 45 or 46 years of age. I probably can't make that kind of money. I'm going over here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish they'd stop talking all this <clears throat> other rubbish and just come clean on that. It's it's all about money. That's it. Yeah, That's I mean, they're they're convinced that this new product of team events and calling them names and selling them and having sponsors and all that is going to work. I don't know, John. I mean, look, who would have said six months ago it would have got as far as it is? So I don't think we can dismiss that idea that it's definitely dead in the water. No, I, it doesn't. It doesn't appeal to me. I want to see the TPC. I want to see Bay Hill. I want to see Wentworth. I want yeah. to see the Irish Open. I want to see Scottish. I want to see all of those events, you know, and, and maybe we need to curtail and make a premiership of events that all the players play in. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, talk about growing the game. The best way to grow the game is more than anything else is to move it around the world, mm. you know, and we are too American centric in golf. Yeah. And, you know, Certainly, and you know, Seth Wall won't thank me for this, but I've said it before, and lumber players have as well. Uh, even if it was once every five years or once every three years, take the PGA and put it on the road and put it in South Africa and put it in Australia and put it in Thailand and maybe bring it to the Middle East. You know, there, just once every three or five years, I think that would be a great show of unity for PGA professionals around. I know it's the US PGA, and I know, as I say, Seth won't thank me for that, but it's the only one that can move. Although the Open Championship in theory could move too, yeah. mm-hmm. but I don't know if they would, but you know what? It could go down and it will be fantastic down in Melbourne, but I don't know if we'll ever get to that stage. That could be too leap of a faith, too big, much of a leap of faith. But what I would say is that, um, golf will change. The business of golf will change in the short term. Yeah. And, um, it will give more security to the tours. On that happy note, Paul McGinley, thank you much, very much for your time. Thank it's, you. It's Always been a pleasure. interesting. Yeah. You too, Huggy. Yeah. Good luck with everything. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Fascinating stuff there from one of the modern game's more interesting thinkers, and especially some of his thoughts on the fallout from Live Golf at the end. That's it for episode 74, but make sure you've added the show to your listening list as there's plenty more good stuff to come here on The Thing About Golf.